almost 50 years now and we want another 50 for all the great people who moved to Portland or have lived here their whole lives and uh, you can donate by uh, looking at us up on kboo.fm super easy super convenient online and then you can also drop by the radio station that's what I recommend doing that's how I got started volunteering here but there's so much that KBOO has to offer whether it's the bizarre late night music shows that I love <laughs> or the incredibly informative news shows where where else are you going to hear about the Palestinian hunger strike I haven't heard it discussed on NPR or, um, you know, the cable news shows. No one is talking about Marwan Baghouti and his um, struggle for a liberation of the Palestinian people, except at KABU. And thanks to KABU, you get that information. So you can say thank you to KABU by pledging whatever you can afford, $10 a month, one-time gift of 50 bucks. Whatever you feel you can afford will help KABU stay on the air, pay our electric bills, and keep this radio station running because there are many many cities around america that do not have such a great community resource isn't that right ken we're extremely fortunate will to have kabu uh, I, I i've been here for volunteering for about four years barbara much longer and will you also much longer uh, you said you came to portland around 1993 yep um yeah when i when i got to portland i i was listening to kabu for a long time grateful dead and friends was a favorite of mine so it took a while to become a member and certainly it took a while to become a volunteer but i'm very happy i did if you're not a member and you enjoy KABU, really, we depend on listeners like you. So give us a call at 877-500-5266. We'll mention the Palestinian issues, but also local issues like on Barbara's show where she interviewed uh, just uh, now uh, Kendra Kimbaraskis uh, talking about the issue in Oregon of mega da- uh, dairies uh, driving out family farms. Uh, again, and polluting. Something you're not going to find in the Oregonian or KGW, even Willamette Week and the Portland Mercury. They're not reporting on this, but KBU is. So it's extremely important local, national, and international programming. And you're supporting it all with your uh, memberships at 877-500-5266. That's right. It's so important. It really is. I can't overemphasize this. Or maybe I can. Maybe I am. (laughs) But the point is... You can donate a small amount of money, not a big dent in your wallet, but it will be so much help to KVU. We do not waste money here. This is not a, uh, a, a radio station that's underwritten by the Ford Foundation or the Koch brothers or um, Coca-Cola or any of the big corporations. They wouldn't fund us. If they heard us, they'd probably want us off the air. But you are a member of this community, and it's your responsibility and your honor to donate to KBOO. So please call us at 877-500-5266. That's 877-500-KBOO. In fact, I was listening to Greg Palace this morning, as I mentioned, on the, on the way in uh, driving into KBOO. He said that under the current administration, you're already seeing this with a net neutrality issue, the FCC will do everything it can to drive community and progressive stations like KBOO off the air and try to resell the very valuable frequencies that we have. Ours is 90.7 here in, in Portland. Uh, we need the money <laughs> to fight efforts like that to keep us going. Uh, as Will mentioned, it's almost 50 years. So we started in 1968, so next year, KBOO will be 50 years old. Just absolutely incredible. So give us a call now. Become a member. Renew your membership at 877-500-5266 or online at kboo.fm. And thank you, Will, and thank you, Ken. This is KBOO Portland, your community radio, and as Will said, that makes it your responsibility to keep it vital, strong, fierce, and independent. And able to air a program like Project Censored Radio coming up next, where we'll be looking at the role of civil disobedience in the struggle for social change. 
So thank you to all the current KBU members and to the folks who will be renewing their membership and the folks who will be returning, resuming their financial support at kboo.fm slash give or by phone at 877-500-5266. Here is Project Censored. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm Peter Phillips. Mickey Huff will return next week. In today's show, we will cover the importance of civil disobedience for social change. We interview Tim DeChristopher, American climate activist and co-founder of the environmental group's Peaceful Uprising and Climate Disobedience Center. Later in the program, we'll talk with abortion rights activist Sara Taylor regarding the Stop Patriarchy movement. We hope you will stay tuned. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm Peter Phillips. In today's show, we're covering the importance of civil disobedience for social change. We're interviewing Tim DeChristopher, American climate activist and co-founder of the environmental group's Peaceful Uprising and Climate Disobedience Center. Tim is an American climate activist and co-founder of the environmental group's Peaceful Uprising and Climate Disobedience Center. In December of 2008, he protested the Bureau of Land Management oil and gas lease auction of 116 parcels of public land in Utah's Red Rock County by successfully bidding on 14 parcels of land, 22,000 acres for $1.8 million, with no intentions to pay for them. The Christopher was removed from the auction by federal agents, taken into custody, and eventually served 21 months in prison. During his trial, De Christopher's defense team sought to rely on what is called a necessity defense, which required proof that De Christopher was forced to choose between two evils, and that his actions resulted in the lesser of two to avoid imminent harm where no legal alternative was available. So, Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You've been engaging now in civil disobedience and encouraging people to do that in a very active way, and you focus on climate. What is your motivation for that? I think climate change is one of of many clear issues where the urgency of the situation is so clear and and the crisis is so serious, and yet the government's response to it is so clearly inadequate, and they're failing to to address the challenge of actually defending our, our civilization from the threat of climate change. And so I feel like that's that's an area where it creates a clear necessity for action by regular citizens to directly stand in the way of the fossil fuel industry and try to defend a, a livable future. Tell us more about the history of, of how you ended up in jail for, for two years. The way I read it, you didn't exactly plan to do that or end up in jail, but it just sort of happened. You felt compelled. 
you know, at that time in 2008, uh, I was I had been growing more and more concerned about climate change for the previous few years, and was also studying social movement history and seeing that the climate movement, especially at that time, looked nothing like any successful social movement in our history, because it was trying to appease our current power structure, and it was trying to create kind of a non-threatening movement that was advocating for a cleaner, greener version of the world that we have now, where we kind of switch out our power sources and keep every other injustice about our society the same, you know, as opposed to most of our social movements in our history that have challenged our current power structure and have articulated a big vision of a truly healthy and just world. So I saw the need for a more confrontational kind of movement that was engaging in things like civil disobedience to kind of rattle the current power structure. And so I was looking for opportunities for that. And this auction came around and it seemed like as good of an opportunity as any. And so I I showed up with the intent to do whatever I could to stand in the way of this auction. I saw it as kind of the the perfect intersection of a lot of the land use issues that are very salient in Utah and also just the drill now, think later kind of mentality that's driving the climate crisis. So I showed up thinking I might give a speech or get dragged out by security and that sort of thing. And when I showed up, they said, would you like to be a bidder? And I said, well, yes, I would. And then just saw the opportunity right there to actually have a major impact. So they were leasing land. This was public land, BLM land, Bureau of Land Management, for drilling, for gas, oil, whatever. Right. And you bid on 22,000 acres, and then, of course, you had no intention of paying. So did, did that block the sale of that land or that lease for a while? Yeah. So that was a somewhat unusual auction because it was the very last one under the Bush administration. So they were trying to get as much into the hands of the oil and gas industry as possible. And it was the first one under the new resource management plans that they'd spent all eight years of the Bush administration rewriting. So it was kind of the the one opportunity where they had a complete open-door policy to auction off these lands right outside of Canyonlands and Arches National Parks. So... Once I disrupted it, there was a lot of other opposition to this auction as well. There were groups filing lawsuits and things like that. So it created enough attention then that the new Secretary of the Interior, Ken Salazar, who came in under the Obama administration, had to then admit that they weren't following their own laws in holding that auction in the first place. And so they rescinded not only the parcels that I won, but most of the other parcels in the auction as well. And and that kind of entered like a a sort of limbo period for that block of land, and and it ushered in a a new reconsideration of how that auction process is done. So now the most recent development just a few months ago was uh, a new draft uh, master leasing plan for the whole Moab area of the Bureau of Land Management that actually permanently puts most of those parcels that I bid on permanently off limits to drilling. You ended up spending 21 months in federal prison, correct? Right. Yep. And uh, was it worth it? Yeah, absolutely. It was kind of more worth it than I ever expected. You know, when I went into it, I expected I would probably go to prison. And at that time, I was fairly focused on the direct impacts of that drilling and keeping that oil in the ground. But I found that it also had, you know, and it accomplished that, but it also had much more indirect impacts of empowering others to take action and and setting an example and kind of galvanizing a movement there in in Utah and also being a part of, of a lot of factors that pushed the mainstream climate movement to be much more confrontational and and to to broadly embrace tactics like civil disobedience. 
you've created a civil disobedience center. You've been educating people on, on these tactics. Talk a little bit about the importance of civil disobedience for social change. I think the primary thing that civil disobedience does is it uses the power of one's own vulnerability, both before the justice system and, and often vulnerability in a physical kind of way. It uses that power of vulnerability to arouse the conscience of a community. And and I think uh, approaching things with one's own vulnerability is rather shocking in our society that seems to only understand a power that stems from domination and a power of control. And tapping into a power of vulnerability kind of rattles people out of their everyday apathy and, and lethargy of their consumer lives and forces them to deal with that human connection that they are exposed to through the power of vulnerability. So the Climate Disobedience Center folks and I were up in Seattle working on the the Delta Five trial of five activists that blockaded an oil train about a year and a half ago. And they were the first ones in the climate movement who have been able to actually use the necessity defense and present those arguments in court. And we saw the tremendous impact that uh, that, that trial and the vulnerability of those activists who were, who were the defendants, we saw the, the power that that had on their own community and on the court system itself. You know, by the end of that trial, the jurors were hugging the defendants and signing up to go to their next lobby day um, and thanking them for, for the education that they had gotten during that trial that week. So the Delta Five activists were a group that blockaded a bomb train, right. a train loaded with crude oil that have been derailing and causing some serious problems around the country and in Canada. And they ended up being charged and going to court. But they were allowed to mount or at least talk about the danger of climate change. But the judge wouldn't let the jury use that to decide. Explain how that happened. Well, it it ended up being a a sort of schizophrenic case from from the part of the judge where first he denied the necessity of defense, then he overruled himself two days later um, on a motion to reconsider and and allowed the arguments for for necessity of defense. So uh, for the first four days of the trial, the defendants were able to not only testify on their own behalf, but put expert witnesses on the stand to talk about the threat of climate change, the immediate threat of these bomb trains rolling through communities, and also talk about the way that the fossil fuel industry has corrupted our political process. Talk about money and politics and the Exxon New revelations and the massive climate denial machine um, and talk about the history of civil disobedience and all that kind of stuff. And it was phenomenal for four days. And, and they were able to present really the most comprehensive case for climate action that, that I've seen anywhere, and certainly the most comprehensive that's ever been presented in an American courtroom. So that was really impressive. And then when it came to the part of the trial about jury instructions, the the judge ruled that the the defense hadn't sufficiently met the fourth standard of necessity defense, which is that there are no reasonable legal alternatives. And so the judge then denied the necessity defense for closing arguments and then instructed the jury that all of that expert testimony that they had just heard was now inadmissible, and they weren't allowed to consider any of that when making their final decision. Fascinating discussion we're having here. It's about Project Censored. One of my most, um, one of the subjects I'm most interested in is censorship. I grew up in England where they censored movies and TV, and in America there's a lot less censorship, but there still is censorship, and censorship can come in many different forms. It's by omission you can have censorship. But KBU doesn't tolerate that, and that's why we're talking about this right now on the air, and that's why you're listening. So please pick up the phone, dial 877-500-5266. 
That's 877-500-KBU. We have some people who've already called up. They've pledged their support. Isn't that right, Ken? Oh, well, yeah, we, we have some thank yous here from people who uh, became members or renewed their membership. We have Megan from Northeast Portland. Robert from Northwest Portland, Susan also from Northeast Portland, Christopher from Southeast Portland, and Travis from Northeast Portland, who says that he loves KBOO so much and, and thanks us for the diversity uh, of our shows, our programming. You also can become a new member or renew your membership right now, 877-500-5266. This is our spring membership drive, Will. It started last week, but it ends in just three days, Wednesday at 10 o'clock. I just found that out. I was a little surprised. <laughs> right. Because I, <laughs> anyway, um, yes, indeedy, very short time left to pledge your support. And we want to thank everybody who's already called, everybody who's renewed their membership or starting a membership or is donating a one-time donation. We want to thank all those folks. And we want to thank the people who will be calling very soon. And I know that's you out there in listener land. And you can make it happen by dialing 877 it's really important to um, show how much you appreciate KBU. It's a valuable resource, and you can't put a price on something this valuable, but you can help pay for it. And I recommend dialing 877-500-5266, or you can come by the radio station. We're at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue, just off Burnside, or you can donate online. There are many, many ways to pledge your support to this radio station, but it's so important you do it right now because we're running out of time, and KBU relies on you folks out there, and you rely on KBU. So please pick up the phone, dial 877 877- Five zero zero five two six six. You know, Will, you were talking about uh, censorship in England, and then in the U.S., I think we have more of what you mentioned as censorship by omission. In other words, stories that uh, there, there's no law, no regulation. Uh, the FCC uh, will still allow you to report on these, but nobody does. Yeah. But KBU does. Yep. Uh, that's the whole purpose, in fact, of uh, this radio zine this morning, the Project Censored uh, uh, programming on civil disobedience. We've uh, heard from Tim Christopher. Tim actually put uh, his liberty on the line by submitting a, a, a bid uh, for federal oil and gas auction in Utah in 2008. I he remember that story, yeah. He spent 21 months in prison. Bloody hell. And uh, we're now uh, reporting on that. Uh, 21 months in prison. So this is not something that uh, you hear on other stations, certainly not other radio stations, but you're not going to hear it on the local news. You're not going to hear it in the Oregonian. Uh, it, it's something that is censored by omission. That's what cable brings you these stories so give us a call now if you want to keep this going again we'll be 50 years old next year 877-500-5266 or online at kbu.fm explain more completely the necessity defense and the four elements that are required to really make that kind of a case the four elements of necessity defense are i mean basically the necessity defense argument is that one is acting out of necessity to prevent a greater harm than the law that they're violating. So the first element has to be a reasonable expectation of imminent harm. And the second element is that that harm that they're trying to avoid is greater than the harm of whatever crime that they're committing in doing so. And the the third element is that the people in question didn't start the harm that that they're trying to now avoid. And the fourth element is that there are no reasonable legal alternatives. So the classic 
example of necessity defense is if a house is on fire and there's a child upstairs and you kick the door in, which could be considered breaking and entering, you kick the door in to go save that child's life. So if you're charged then with breaking and entering, you can use a necessity defense to argue that you are acting out of necessity to prevent the greater harm of this child dying. And in order to use that defense, you have to show that, that there's an imminent harm with that house being on fire and a kid being inside. You have to show that the harm of that kid dying is greater than you know you breaking the door jam of that door. And you have to show that you didn't start the fire. And you have to show that there's no reasonable legal alternatives to breaking and entering there. And that fourth hurdle of no reasonable alternatives is often the one that prevents civil disobedience cases from being able to use the necessity defense, because it's often argued that there are always reasonable alternatives within the legal system that you can, you know, write a letter to your congressperson, you can sign another petition, all these things. And so what it comes down to is the question of whether or not there is something unique that civil disobedience does in terms of social change that acting within the, the, the legal boundaries cannot do. And that uniqueness, that is the potential to be creative with that or strategic with that is always present, correct? Yeah. You know, and, and so one of the things that this case came down to is kind of what the intent of the activists who were doing this civil disobedience was. And the prosecution was was claiming that their intent was just to get media coverage, to, to get attention for their cause, for the threat of, of oil trains. And the judge seemed to kind of buy into the idea that that's what the intent was, to, to raise awareness, basically, to put it more positively, to raise awareness. And, and there wasn't a clear enough distinction that they were trying to do something different, that they were trying to raise awareness in a different kind of way than our normal public education campaigns. So there wasn't that emphasis on how civil disobedience can uniquely accomplish that role of arousing the conscience of a community in a way that all the kind of safe actions within the legal system that, that lack that element of vulnerability for the people in question, that none of those can accomplish in quite the same way, which is part of why civil disobedience has been such a critical part of, of our social movement history. The other specific issue in this case, which which I believe might come up on appeals. Since the activists were convicted on one of the charges, they were convicted of trespass, there is the opportunity to appeal. And I think what that will come down to is the question of whether reasonable legal alternatives includes the question of sufficiency, whether those legal alternatives are sufficient to avoid the harm. And, and that was part of the debate that was going on there in front of the judge, where the defense was trying to say, Yes, there are legal alternatives. You can write a letter. You can do all those things. But all the activists in question have done all those things, and none of them are actually sufficient to avoid the harm of climate change. And the judge kind of dismissed that question of whether or not those are sufficient. But I think when you look at the basic argument around necessity outside of civil disobedience cases, obviously sufficiency has to come into question. You know, if that house is burning... Of course, there are legal alternatives that you could do. You could call the rural fire department that might be 15 miles away and hope that they get there before that child dies. You could throw a bucket of water from the stream on it. You know, you could spit on it. You could try to blow it out like a birthday cake. The question is, are any of those things actually going to save the life of that child, right? And, and for them to be reasonable alternatives, they have to be sufficient to avoid that harm. And so I think there's an opportunity with this case in the appeals court 
to to clarify that ruling and potentially expand the use of the necessity defense for civil disobedience cases. It would seem that the power structure, oil companies, any corporation that's worried about civil disobedience would push very hard to try to not allow a necessity defense in, in any case, whether you have infant formula that you're feeding children in Guatemala or privatizing the water, or certainly this, the case, this case of Flint with the terrible water situation there. The necessity defense opens up and, and shows a justification for real obstruction in many ways. And in fact, with the Delta Five, the train was stopped and trains are dangerous. They don't fall off the tracks all the time, with, but there's a predictable regularity that could have major consequences. And your center is encouraging these kinds of actions, correct? Yeah. And, you know, part of that is the impact. And that's why corporations are afraid of these kinds of actions, because they see that there are more and more reasons for people to be resisting the corporate control of our government. You know, the the lead activist in the Delta Five case, the woman who was at the top of the tripod, Abby Brockway, about three or four months before they blockaded that train, there was a train that derailed in Seattle less than a mile from her daughter's school. And the oil cars derailed but didn't explode, thankfully. Um, but it was it was enough of a close call and a wake-up call for her um, that she was propelled into action. And one of the other defendants runs a, a coffee shop and lives above the coffee shop in downtown Everett, Washington, where the oil trains run about half a mile from from his shop, which means that the technical term for where where his shop is is called the fireball zone. So you know it's it's a very salient issue for him. I mean he has lots of reasons to continue standing up against those oil trains. We are listening to the Project Censored show. Tim De Christopher is an American climate activist and co-founder of the Environmental Group's Peaceful Uprising and Climate Disobedience Center. We're now going to take a short musical break. Well, back here in uh, Spring Membership Drive Central for KBU, uh, give us a call if uh, you've been on the fence. Our membership drive just lasts another three days, 877-500-5266 or online at KBU.fm. I'm Ken. I'm here with my friend Will. Will and I were just discussing uh, uh, the importance of KBU, the public affairs program you've been listening to all morning or parts of the morning. Uh, This is a Project Censored uh, programming Again, stories. Uh, Will had mentioned uh, censorship by omission, which I think is the most popular form of censorship in the U.S. In other words, there's stories that people can report on, but they just don't. They're not entertaining enough, or the the powers that be don't feel that you're interested. But I know KBU listeners are, Will. For sure, without a doubt. And KBU listeners care about the more important details. Where we're fed pablum in the newspapers and uh, you know cable TV, but KBU brings you the meat and vegetables, the saucy, spicy vegetables, and that's what's important. Where else are you going to find this? So you can show your appreciation for this great radio station by dialing eight seven seven five zero zero five two six six. We have some wonderful volunteers sitting by, ready to answer the phone when you call and pledge your support for this terrific radio station. Yeah, and Will and I were talking about uh, this interview here with Tim to Christopher. Uh, uh, and uh, 
Will, you said you remembered the story, oh, yeah. but what you didn't remember, and this is news to me too, that uh, Tim spent 21 months in prison, and it was for That's civil disobedience, just right. interfering with this uh, federal oil and gas auction in Utah in 2008. 21 months, almost two years just for that. It's insane. You can invade yeah. Iraq and not go to prison. but if you in, disturb, in fact, you can be declared a hero, I guess. I think you can. <laughs> yes. Not by us. But, yeah, not by but us. Now, you can do 21 months in prison just for trying to defend the environment. And Kebu, uh, Will and also uh, Will and I have been uh, uh, pitching now since 9 a.m. We've been emphasizing this point. The station was started in 1968, so next year is our 50th anniversary. Uh, you can go all over the country. You're not going to find a whole lot of stations like Kebu. Maybe a handful, if that many. Maybe uh, you can count them on three fingers. There's KPFA, I know, in the Bay Area. There might be one in New York and Los Angeles. Nothing in nothing in New Orleans, nothing in Chicago, nothing in Seattle. So we're really very fortunate to have Kebu, and about 67% of our operating budget is dependent on you, the listener, not the Coke Brothers, not Sheldon Adelson, not Ford, not Chevy, not Pepsi-Cola. So give us a call if you've been on the fence about uh, becoming a new member, if you uh, it's time to renew your membership, you haven't done that yet, perfect time to call now. Our volunteers are ready for you, 877-500-5266, Will. That's right, and three days from now, the pledge drive will be over. You can still donate or pledge your support after the pledge drive, but why not strike while the iron is hot? We have people waiting in here to answer the phones. They have been ringing, and we've been doing great great, but you can contribute to the larger program by calling 877-500-5266. That's 877-500-KBOO. And you can also pledge your support online at kboo.fm. And Sam just told me to wrap it up, so I will, just like Sam and Dave did. But dial 877-500-5266. Welcome back to the Project Sensor Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm Peter Phillips. Today we're covering the importance of civil disobedience for social change, and we're interviewing Tim Dick Christopher, American climate activist and co-founder of the Environmental Group's Peaceful Uprising and Climate Disobedience Center. Tim, you went to the Harvard Divinity School, so talk about why you did that and the importance of spirituality in all of this. I made that decision a little before I, I went to prison that that I needed to go to divinity school. And and that had grown out of my time in between when I disrupted the auction and when I got incarcerated, where I was pretty much a full-time climate activist in those years. And, and I was seeing that the challenge of the climate movement was shifting and that it was going beyond just the job of reducing emissions to increasingly moving towards the job of figuring out how we can maintain our humanity as we navigate this period of chaotic change that is now largely inevitable. And and so looking around the climate movement, I realized that we didn't have any of the tools and skills to even begin that conversation of how we hold on to our humanity in, in desperate times, how we hold on to our values in a seemingly hopeless situation. But it seemed to me that religious traditions did have a set of tools and skills for that because that's what people have often turned to religious communities for. And so I was certainly thinking in that direction. And then sort of the galvanizing moment for me was in my trial, in the jury selection process, the judge and the prosecutor found out that about three quarters of the jury pool had received a pamphlet before they walked in to the courthouse on the first day from the Fully Informed Jurors Association. And it was a pamphlet that didn't say anything about my case, but it talked about jury rights and why we have juries, how juries are meant to be the conscience of the community 
to protect their fellow citizens from the government. And when they found that out, the prosecution just lost their minds. And we had to have a meeting in the judge's chamber where the prosecution was asking for a mistrial to get rid of the entire jury pool. And he was almost spitting when he was reading from this pamphlet saying, this notion of voting your conscience is out in space. And and rather than declare a mistrial, the judge called each of the potential jurors one at a time into his chambers with me and my legal team on one side and the prosecution on the other and the judge at the head of the table kind of speaking down to this potential juror in, a, in his patriarchal kind of way. And he said, you need to understand that it's not your job to decide what's right or wrong. Your job is to listen to what the law says and you have to enforce it even if you think it's morally wrong. Can you do that? Can you do what I ask you to do even if you think it's morally wrong? And and I was sitting in the seat closest to the juror and, and I watched one person after another say, yes, your honor, I'll do whatever you ask me to do even if I think it's morally wrong. And I could tell that they meant it. You know, 